Well, we're a few sermons into a series in the Psalms. We are having our first summer in the Psalms. This is certainly my first time as a preacher preaching through the Psalms, and the Psalms are a lot different than anything else. So when you read Paul, Paul's writings are heavily technical and often theological. You read the Gospels, there's a lot of narrative, storytelling. The Psalms is this repository of human emotion in the Bible. I mean, this roller coaster of experience and emotion that human beings go through is all reflected in the Psalms. And so they're not like anything else. They're not, there isn't always like, you know, here are three theological points David or Asaph is making in the Psalms. So, so if you don't get that, just know that, like if you don't hear that from the sermon, just know that like that's not, that's not really what the Psalms are doing. The Psalms are lamenting, weeping and mourning over kind of the brokenness of life. The Psalms are giving thanks and praising the, the wonderful experience of God's you know, grace and mercy. Um, and so the Psalms are making these movements that you really don't see anywhere else in all of Scripture. This morning we're, we're coming from Psalm 1 and you would have thought, well, why didn't you start in Psalm 1? I felt like we had to get our feet wet in the Psalms a little bit over the past few weeks before coming to Psalm 1. So we've kind of bounced around a little bit, and that's okay. But we're in Psalm 1 this morning, so I'm going to read through it and hear the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Father, now we thank you and pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to convict us and convince us of your truth, that we might glean your wisdom in your mind and be so transformed by your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, have you ever heard someone say, usually Christians say this, I may not be happy, but I've got joy. Ever heard that before? There's a couple nods. I, I thought there'd be more, more people who have heard that. I, I grew up hearing that my whole life. You know, I, you, you, you won't always be happy, but God gives us joy deep down. And that's sort of Christianese, a Christianese way of saying I guess that joy and happiness are supposedly two different things, and Christians can only really count on the latter. And I have to be honest, it's always bummed me out when I heard people say that, and I've said it too over the years. Well, I may not be happy, but you know, I've got joy. And the idea of deep inner joy without happiness has always seemed like a, like a consolation prize for the fact that the Christian life kind of stinks. That the Christian life is this kind of austere existence of purity and hardship, and we don't really have a lot of fun, 
and you know, it's just like we're just kind of hanging on, you know, um, for dear life until either Lord returns or we die and go to heaven. And so we say this statement that we can't really have happiness, but we've got joy. And that's supposed to comfort us. The problem is it's completely bogus. I don't mean the part about God loving us and us going to heaven when we die. That's not what I'm talking about. But this idea that, um, that God doesn't promise us happiness. Now you have two extremes, right? You've got one group of the church, that's all they're pursuing and it's, it's God is gonna help you live your best life now. I don't need to name those people, but you know who they are. And then there's another group who are reacting against that saying essentially that um, life isn't about, it's not about happiness in this life, right? And that's kind of this overreaction to this group over here. And they're both kind of extremes. But the truth is, we spend our whole lives pursuing happiness. Are we really to believe that, that God has no concern about this one seeming preoccupation of ours? What's happened is, somewhere along the line, we started defining happiness the way the world started defining happiness. In other words, the popular conception universally of happiness is temporal, superficial, and circumstantial. And so for us modern people, happiness is a mood or an emotion we feel with some, sort of, some, some, some form of gratification. Happiness is an outfit that looks good or feels well. Happiness is an emotion you feel after you go out to dinner and you, know, you like what you ordered. Happiness for us today is someone we're with in relationship that makes us feel good about ourselves. Happiness is we like the car we drive or the job we work at or we like our neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. I've even counseled people, Christians ostensibly, who had left a spouse for someone else and said things like, doesn't God want me to be happy? To which I responded, I think, I, this is a long time ago, but I think I responded something like, no. Like if, if, if pursuing happiness means breaking God's commands, no, God doesn't want you to be happy. But I remember when I said it, it, it didn't really fit, you know, it didn't, it didn't feel good, you know, that I had to say that. I think I said something like, God is against your happiness. And that's because of this idea that happiness is fleeting, it's temporal. Happiness is this whimsical, emotional thing that we pursue. The problem, of course, is the dissonance between ours and God's vision of what happiness is. And so you have to go to the scriptures. Scripture's conception of happiness is completely different than our modern idea of happiness that I've just articulated. In scripture, the whole concept of happiness is veiled, hidden as it were, behind the word blessed. And there are two primary places in the Bible that use this, it's a, it's a biblical word in Hebrew and Greek for happy, and it's the word blessed. One is in the Beatitudes, where all the blesseds, blessed are, blessed are the peacemakers. It's literally translated as happy. Happy is the person who is a peacemaker. Happy, you know, are the righteous. You know, 
And, and Psalm 1 is another reflection of that. And so I want you, as you hear this morning the word <coughs> blessed, I want you to hear the word happy, but I want you to redefine the word happy, not simply meaning your emotion or the mood you're in, but it has more to do with the idea of flourishing. Flourishing the way God has created and made us. And from this vantage point of happiness, again, not the modern conception of happiness, which is a mood, a temporary emotion, but from God's vantage point of happiness, which is the idea of truly being blessed and flourishing in the way that God has created us as human beings, God's top priority is our happiness. God's top priority is our happiness. Indeed, God created us to pursue happiness, and part of what it means to be human is the pursuit of our own happiness. In Psalm 1, the happy person is not defined by what they have, how good-looking they are, how many vacations they take every year, but in terms of the contrast with the wicked. So that's how the Bible defines the happy person. The happy person lives and thinks and behaves differently than wicked people. The happy person thinks different. The happy person is viewed differently in the sight of God than the wicked. And there's these activities that are metaphors for a person's pattern of living, right? There's walking and standing and sitting. The blessed or the happy person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now on the surface, it seems like there's a contradiction here because when we think about Jesus, we think about, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus always kind of like walking and sitting and standing with sinners? He certainly hung out with sinners. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. How does this make sense? Is there some kind of dissonance between the Old and New Testament? <clears throat> well, to walk in the counsel of the wicked means to take wicked counsel, to live your life in a way that takes the advice of wicked people or lives your life according to counsel, advice, and a philosophy that is evil. To stand in the way of sinners, the Hebrew word for stand means to, it means an attitude, right? To stand for something that is sinful. So to stand in the way of sinners is to stand with Sinners for sinful causes. So the word stand has a lot to do with your attitude. Don't stand in the way or stand for the things that sinners stand for. To sit in the seat of scoffers means to dwell, right? When you sit down, the idea of dwelling, to make your dwelling among scoffers, people who mock God. <clears throat> so it's interesting that right out of the gate, the happy, per happy person, there's these three negatives, the happy person does not do these things. The happy person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. <clears throat> if you want to be happy, you don't do those things. You don't walk according to wicked advice. You don't make a stand with sinners in their sin or their sinful causes. You can think about the month we're in right now and some marches and parades going on. And the happy or blessed person does not make their dwelling place among people who mock God. Now this has nothing to do with un, 
with, with avoiding unbelievers as if the mere contact with sinners somehow contaminates us, all right? So I want you to, to wrap your head around that, that. This is not what this is talking about. This passage is not saying avoid sinful people at all costs or else we would be doing what I've criticized for the last year or so, which is erecting really high walls, right? These three different approaches that Christians take to culture, right? The fortification mentality, which is we are gonna build a barrier between us and sinful people. We are going to withdraw and pull ourselves as far away as we can to have very little contact, if any, with sinful people, right? There's fortification, one approach to culture. The other approach to culture is domination. We're gonna conquer the culture. We're gonna confront everyone over every single thing they, they ever do all the time with picket signs and marches and protests and bullhorns. Or we're just gonna accommodate the culture and just kind of abandon the gospel altogether and just say, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And all, of those, all three of those approaches are wrong, right? You remember a few months ago we talked about that. That is not what Psalm 1 is talking about. Psalm 1 is not talking about avoiding sinful people. It's talking about a pattern of living that, that does not yield fulfillment. It's talking about a pattern of living that does not cause us to truly and deeply flourish. And so what is the pattern of life if we want to be happy? What pattern of life ought we to pursue? Well, verse two says, the happy person delights in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. Now again, there's some need for explanation here because a few months back, we were talking about the difference between the law of Moses and how the gospel sets us free from having to measure up. This use of the, the phrase law here is not strictly speaking about Moses' law, but all of God's instructions, okay? So it includes Moses' law, but, but, but the law... The phrase law in the Bible is complex. So often it means narrowly Moses' law and all of those ordinances and commands. And sometimes it is just referring to just God's instructions in general. And that's what's happening right here in Psalm 1. The happy person delights in God's instruction. The way to happiness is to follow the instructions of the Lord. I mentioned it. I think last week we moved into a new place and we bought a bunch of Ikea furniture. And there was a time where I swore off Ikea furniture. Because it, they, Ikea furniture, our experience years ago was they could not endure a move. You know, you know, Ikea furniture is great if you put it together and you leave it alone. But like if you have to lift it up more than a few times, it just starts to wiggle and fall apart. But they've gotten a lot better. And so we purchased some Ikea furniture and um, and I was putting together dressers and nightstands and entertainment centers, and man, I looked at every page of the instruction booklet. I mean, one dresser I put together were 48 pages, and I read or looked at the pictures on every single page. And I mean, I was feeling good. I was putting furniture together, I was knocking stuff out, and you know how it is, you know, after you've put a few pieces of Ikea furniture together, you kind of feel like, well, if you've put one piece together, you, you put them all together. And so about a week or so later, I bought a, another piece. It was a dresser for my daughter. And I kind of, you know, I put the radio on, and I had, you know, I had my music going, I think it was like Pandora, and I was kind of rocking out in the room, and I kind of wasn't looking at the instructions too much. Because, you know, I had already put together like five or six pieces of, of furniture. 
And um, I had to take apart the dresser like three times because there was just like one small little instruction I missed. You know, 97% of it I had nailed, but I had found that, you know, with the dresser, the piece that was supposed to go on top was on the bottom, and I had to take the whole thing apart, and then I had some of the, the rails that you slide the drawer on kind of like reversed, and like three times I had to take this dresser apart because I had not paid close attention to the instructions. It took me two whole days to put this silly little dresser together. It ruined, you know, those two days. I, I wasn't happy. Look, God's instructions are there to make us happy. If we follow them, they make us happy. They're there for our benefit. And when we follow God's instructions, all the pieces of our lives fit together. That's what they're there for. That's what God's instructions are there for. And so happy is the person, blessed is the man who delights in the instructions and the law of God because their life fits together. The pieces of your life fit together when you follow God's instructions. You can think of cases in the Bible, the Israelites wander for 40 years in the wilderness because they disregarded God's law. They disregarded the commands and the instructions God gave them and so an 11-day trip took 40 years, and that entire generation died in the wilderness because of it. Listen, the blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The blessed, the happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. God's law is a delight not because it's an instrument of self-righteousness or material for self-justification, but because through God's law, through his instructions, through his word, he touches and shapes the human soul through it. There's something that happens as you live your life through the word of God, through God's instructions, is you're transformed by it. Your heart is shaped for it. There is a type of spiritual inner formation that brings us close to God and makes us like God. I mean, if there's anything we ought to glean from the idea that Jesus perfectly kept the law of God, it's that he was God and that God's word is there to shape our hearts, to shape our souls, and to conform us to the likeness and image of Jesus. Now, the psalmist gives us this illustration of the blessed person who delights in the law of God, who follows God's instructions. He's like a, ple- a tree planted by streams of water in verse three, yielding its fruit in its season. Its leaves don't wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. Now what's the image there? A tree planted by rivers of water. Before we lived in Missouri, we moved from the high desert in California, and Um, it's arid. The climate is incredibly arid. It's just about an hour north of Los Angeles, but there's like no rain. I mean, even in LA, there's hardly any rain, but in the high desert, it may rain a a couple times a year, and it's nothing like this, where in the daytime, it gets like pitch black outside. And the roots don't go very deep because there's not much water in the ground. 
and the trees are hardened and there's not a lot of leaves on them. It's very brown. But here's this incredible image, and there's a contrast as you move through Psalm 1, that the blessed person, the happy person, is like a tree planted by waters. And like a tree near water, the nourishment that the happy person, the blessed person sustains is hidden. Its nourishment is internal, drawn through roots that are invisible to anyone who is just looking at this tree. And that's a picture of the blessed person. Their life is hidden in God and Christ. Your neighbor doesn't know why you have this kind of you know, uh, uh, sustainability about you. Your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers don't really understand why you're able to endure trials and overcome hardships and because there is a, a hidden strength that nourishes you that other people cannot see on the surface. You're like a tree planted close to streams of waters. Source of strength is unseen, and like a tree planted by waters, you endure any and all types of inclement weather. It says, in all that he does, he prospers. Now the wicked, just the opposite. No roots whatsoever. Unlike the tree, they're like the husk shell of a grain of wheat. Who knows anything about how, how you process wheat? No one, okay. Some, I've got some explaining to do, okay. Um, a grain of wheat has an outer shell. It, it, it's a husk. And so on a threshing floor or a place where you process grain in the ancient world, and probably still today in many parts of the world, you separate the wheat the kernel of wheat from the outer shell. The kernel of wheat is substantive and heavy and falls to the ground, and the outer shell is, is just kind of this, it's, it just kind of, it's really light. And so when the wind blows, what happens to the outer shell is it just blows away. The wheat is heavy and falls to the ground and sits in a pile or a little pyramid of grain. But that's this vision, this contrast. I started off saying that in Psalm 1, the blessed person, the happy person, is defined by their, a contrast with the wicked. And so here's the contrast. The happy person, because they follow God's instructions, they pursue God's law and the way of God, generally speaking, their pattern of life is one where it's informed by the will and the word of God. <clears throat> their roots go deep. There's an inner nourishment hidden to other people that gives them strength and the ability to endure all types of seasons. But the wicked not only has no roots, the wicked's not like a different kind of tree. The wicked is like chaff. That's what chaff is, the husk, the outer husk of grain that blows away at the slightest breeze. So if you want to see your see your, the perspective that God sees you, see through the eyes that God sees you in terms of why you're happy, why you're blessed. It has nothing to do with the abundance of possessions you have, how fat your retirement is. It has nothing to do with that. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you've, whether you've got the latest gadgets or even enjoy the car you drive or let alone the job you work at. Those are temporary things. Those are things that can change from year to year. And I say all that because as modern people living in a very consumeristic society, I 
I, I, would not, I wouldn't be kind of out of bounds to say that a lot of us find happiness in, you know, kind of getting things, maybe the latest thing we've bought. And, you know, when that, the problem with that, of course, is what happens is, you know, the excitement of some new purchase fades quickly, and you find yourself, if you're not careful, you're you know, like a shopaholic. <clears throat> maybe that's not your thing. Maybe it's, it's accomplishment and achievement. Maybe the type of person who, you know, you write out the things you want to accomplish and knock and crossing those off and accomplishing those things. Maybe it's like, you know, a to-do list. Some people are driven that way. And every day as you kind of cross those things off on your to-do list, whether it's at work or at home, you feel like you've really accomplished something. You feel this sense of fulfillment. We're all wired differently. But we all seek fulfillment and happiness in things that are ultimately temporary, maybe the grades you get in school, how well you perform in sports. E- even me, as, as, as someone who, this is my job, you'd think, oh, Jordan doesn't experience that. I, I do, I often struggle <coughs> feeling that my happiness lies in being the guy with the answers. In fact, at times it's been kind of an idol for me because the more I learned I have these imaginary conversations with myself in the car, and I rehearse objections to my theology to people. And I'll say, well, what you don't realize is, I mean, I have these conversations in the car. I've been doing it for years. And on one hand, it's, it's a good thing, but on the other hand, it, it, it comes from this idea that I'm going to be happy if no one can get me. Like, there's no gotcha moment for me because I've got all the answers and granted, a pastor and people in ministry are supposed to have answers, but we can all find temporal fleeting happiness in things that don't have really lasting value and things that don't have much value in the sight of God. The happiness that we receive, that we experience, that, that God views us to have comes from this contrast, that we're God's own people, that we're not like the wicked. And it says in verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I said before that the happy person is not defined by what they have, how good looking they are, how many vacations they take, or how much money they make but in terms of a contrast with the wicked. And God is saying, this ought to give you a sense of deep fulfillment, that you're mine. That I know the way you take. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That God says, I know the inner workings of your life. I am taking care of you. I care about you. I'm paying attention to your daily routine, the things that are going on in your heart and in your mind, the things you care about, I care about. (laughs) Rolf Jacobson says, the message of Psalm 1 is that it's far better to give up spurious claims to subjective autonomy and become the object of the Lord's care. This is the true path to happiness. Subjective autonomy means you find happiness in whatever floats your boat. You know, the hardest thing about this message and the reason why there might be some dissonance with us as we think about finding happiness in the kinds of things that are completely contrary to where our culture is, is 
we value our autonomy. We value being able to do things our own way. Right? If there was ever a theme song for America, it wasn't the, it's not the Star Spangled Banner. It's Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. I mean, that, that's our theme song in America. It's I did it my way. I did what I wanted to do, the way I wanted to do it, and by golly, you know, I'm proud of that. Psalm 1 is antithetical to that. To follow the path of Psalm 1 means we might have to unlearn some habits. We might have to relinquish some behaviors to truly find the kind of blessedness and happiness that God outlines here. We might have to learn to not rely on ourselves. We might have to relinquish the idea of being our own masters. It requires relinquishing our greedy grasp on our freedom and our will and surrendering that to God in his constant care and provision for us. But when we do, when we give up those things, when we unlearn those bad habits, when we relinquish this sort of fiendish grasp for our own autonomy, we'll discover, as the psalmist did, that there's a better way, a way that is truly blessed, a way that is truly free, a way that is truly happy. Let's pray. Father, now we do thank you for what you've delivered to us in Psalm 1, which is a path for true happiness, a true kind of fulfillment, O oh God, a fulfillment that causes us to flourish in a way that gives us not just peace, but a rock-solid hope for the present and the future, because you are the one controlling and caring for our lives. We pray now, O oh God, that we would learn to abandon the fleeting, temporary, superficial, circumstantial happiness in exchange for what it really means to be happy or blessed according to your holy word here in Psalm 1. Transform us through this knowledge and through your spirit in Christ's name, amen.